Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's difficulties, please reach out to us for help. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Okay, we're on to episode 45, and I have two wonderful guests today, Shannon Carlin and Amy Emerson, and they are going to talk about their current research they're doing with psychedelics and post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I found this really fascinating because post-traumatic stress disorder can be really difficult to treat, and there's not necessarily a ton of success. So their studies that they're showing, the preliminary results are very promising. And they're with this study particularly, they're using MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy or molly, to help people move through their post-traumatic symptoms. So it's very exciting to see the results that they're showing. And also just to talk with them about it, about how this process works and, and how this is really helping people who are struggling with this really difficult mental health issue. So I was so happy that they came on and they are willing to talk about their research and, and what they're doing. So without further ado, let's start this episode. Okay, everybody, welcome to The Addicted Mind. I've got two great guests today, and they're going to talk about a subject that I am finding really fascinating, and that is the psychedelic studies of working with post-traumatic stress disorder and helping people use that to kind of overcome that and, and work through it. So Shannon and Amy, you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah. Amy, you want to go first? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm Amy Emerson, and I'm the head of the Clinical Research Group and Regulatory Affairs for the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. The MAPS Public Benefit Corporation is a wholly owned subsidiary of MAPS, and MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And we do primarily work on MDMA for PTSD, 
the Penefit Corporation was started in 2015 as the research group for MAPS. And I've been working with this group since 2003. I come from a background of working in pharma. My degree was in genetics and cell biology, and I've spent a number of years doing vaccine research because I seem to love doing controversial research. And so I went from vaccines to psychedelics, which is becoming less controversial by the day. I think that's very true. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I'm just very passionate about being able to do this work and be involved as it's evolving into something that is more accepted because I've always seen Uh, psychedelics as a very important tool that could be used to help heal people. Awesome. Thank you. All right. (laughs) Shannon, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. I'm Shannon Carlin. I'm an associate marriage family therapist in California, and I've been working with the MAPS group in various ways since I was getting my master's degree at the California Institute of Integral Studies and Integral Counseling Psychology. So I come from both working on staff in the research administration with MPBC and Amy and being a clinician, working on the trials with participants in our studies. Got to treat three participants in our MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for anxiety associated with life-threatening illness study with Dr. Phil Wolfson. And currently have just finished treatment of our first participant in the MDMA PTSD study in at our Los Angeles site with Dr. Cole Marta. And I direct our training program at MPBC where we train therapists and doctors and clinicians to do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy under a MAPS protocol. Wow, that, that's amazing. So let's start out by just kind of defining a little bit. We're talking about psychedelics and we're talking about PTSD. And for a lot of people out there listening, we hear those words, but Can you kind of, for your study, kind of talk about what those are in a little more detail? Yeah, so PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, and it can be caused by many different things. People are often familiar with veterans, and I, I think you recently had a guest who was a veteran on your show. Veterans in war and kind of military and combat related traumas, but there are all kinds of different events that happen in our lifetimes that can cause post-traumatic stress, natural disasters, car accidents, sexual abuse, the list could go on. It's really characterized by a life-threatening or potentially life-threatening event that either happens to somebody or they witness that happening to somebody else. And some of the symptoms are it's, it's normal to go through those experiences and to have a reaction and to have a period of time where we might be unstable. The part that turns that into post-traumatic stress disorder is that that lasts for a long time and, and somebody continues to feel some of the symptoms like as if the trauma were still happening to them, even though it occurred in the past. Hypervigilance, like always checking around, checking the room, making sure they're safe or afraid that they might not be safe. Another symptom is avoiding triggers. So if going out at night is a trigger that relates to the trauma, then somebody with PTSD might never go out at night or might have great difficulty doing that. For a lot of people, it interferes with the functioning of their life, their work abilities, their ability to live independently, their relationships, and even other health matters like sleep can be very difficult for somebody with PTSD. Those are just a couple of of the characteristics. Right. And I, I see a lot of when I'm doing my practice at our agency, a lot of people who are coming in with addiction are showing these symptoms. I mean, they're treating 
post-traumatic stress with drugs or substances or behaviors that are destructive to their life and they're trying to cope with all this. So I find this, what you guys are doing, really exciting because it offers a lot of hope to these individuals who are struggling with this because post-traumatic stress is is pretty awful to to live with. So I'm excited to ask you these questions about this and kind of uh, dig in. So let's kind of talk about the psychedelic part and what is that and what does that mean? I just wanted to add in also a bit about the substance use disorder. It's something that we really see is very common and it's difficult because we are working in a research capacity. So you're always trying to like eliminate variables in order to really measure what's happening. But one of them, but you also want it to be applicable to the real world once something would be approved. And so something that we've been talking a lot about is substance use disorders because they tend to really go hand in hand with PTSD. And so we do enroll people that they have to have their substance use disorder under control in some way right, to be in right. a program for it. But we are very aware. And one thing that we see is that a lot of times that starts to resolve as soon as you start to resolve the PTSD because really people are just treating their symptoms. So I just wanted to put that in there. And then MDMA is being used in the UK right now by Dr. Ben Sessa to treat substance use disorder, specifically alcoholism. Okay, well, what what is, for a lot of people who don't know, what is MDMA? That is the active ingredient that is in ecstasy or molly. Okay. I'm not going to give you the chemical name for it because I can never, <laughs> I can never do it. Yeah, correctly. it's super long. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon might be able to. But that, so typically when people are refer, referring to ecstasy or molly, they're hoping that they're having MDMA. So a lot of times what I hear people refer to it is as the active ingredient in MDMA. And that seems to be what people can relate to. It's just that most of the time, if you're getting ecstasy or molly, you don't really know what's in there. Right. So this is uh, you, when you're doing the research, you're act, making sure that it's um, exactly what you're giving them. Yes. We spend a lot of money to do that. We have GMP manufacturing. So good manufacturing practices, just like any pharmaceutical drug would have for our MDMA. So how did these two things kind of come together in this research, looking at MDMA and then looking at post-traumatic stress? How did they kind of come together and, and someone started saying, hey, this may help? Yeah, actually, I'll step in there. So MDMA was first synthesized by Merck Pharmaceuticals in Germany in 1912. And they were looking for, I think, blood coagulating agents unrelated to, to psychiatry. And so it was kind of dropped after that. It wasn't interesting for, for their use and, and nobody really knew about its psychoactive properties until sometime in like the late 70s, early 80s in California, it started being synthesized again. And it wasn't a scheduled drug at that time. It was just kind of a new chemical that people weren't really aware of. But people started testing it and Sasha and Ann Shulgin are produced a lot of different chemicals. And I think in Sasha's lifetime, he passed a few years ago. Uh, he lived in the Bay Area. I think in his lifetime, he created at least over 100 unique psychoactive chemicals. And so he started resynthesizing MDMA in the 80s. And a group of psychologists in the Bay Area were kind of testing the psychoactive properties on themselves in a group um, related to Leo Zeff, who was a psychologist at the time. And they learned that it was relatively safe. There had been some starting to be some safety studies around that time and that it had amazing properties for empathy for oneself and others. So it was actually used for couples therapy at that time. And it was kind of a gray area legally because it hadn't been scheduled. So it, 
it wasn't illegal. And yet it wasn't an approved medicine for people to use. So fast forward 30, 40 years to where we are now. And and I know we'll talk about our research in just a minute, but we've gone through all of these phases of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, phases of clinical research to get to the point where we can have the data to prove this drug is safe and, and effective for these uses in these populations so that it can be used above ground by clinicians. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about when someone is on this drug, what's happening to them and, and what's what's kind of going on with their, I guess, neurochemistry, their body? and Yeah, I think as Shannon was saying, we found, people found in the, in when it was being used above ground before it was scheduled, that it was very helpful for working through couples therapy. Part of it is this increase in trust and this dampening of fear and this increase in empathy. And then when we wanted to start working in a research setting again, this was in the early 2000s, the PTSD population was picked because they're the group that was is well-known. People understood. They also had vets. They have women. It's like a group of people that really needed help. And MDMA, it does exactly the opposite of what PTSD does, right? So PTSD increases fear, decreases trust, empathy's out the door for yourself. And then when you add MDMA, and, then, and when you're trying to work with PTSD, a lot of times people are being re-traumatized because you need to work through the trauma with somebody. You need to talk through it so you have this like memory reconsolidation that can happen so that memories can be kind of placed where they're where in a proper place in the brain so that you know that you actually are safe right now and that happened in the past. But when you try to do that, a lot of times people feel very re-traumatized by the discussion. So with the MDMA on board as a tool, the psychotherapy is like it's an opening for the psychotherapy to happen. People start to become, the MDMA is given to them within about an hour. They start to feel maybe a little anxious as it's starting. They start to feel the effects of it. But then they usually start to come into a place where there's a little more trust and a little more open opening to happen. So they're either, a lot of times people are either hyper or hypo-vigilant or, or activated. And it kind of opens what we call this window of tolerance for them where they're in this kind of activated window, if they're normally not, they're normally pushing everything down, or if they're always like really hyper alert, it kind of brings that fear down a little bit. So you get this area of this window of tolerance that allows therapy to start to happen. And in the brain, what's happening is you see a decrease in activity in the amygdala, which is usually very activated in PTSD. And you see an increase in activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is where your reasoning and your logic kind of our process. And in PTSD, that part is usually dampened. So it's these, the emotional part and what's happening in the brain are exactly the opposite between MDMA and PTSD. So it's kind of a perfect match. So with, with like when someone comes into therapy and um, they're just doing this without this drug, a lot of times they can, they experience like that, that trauma again. So their body, their somatic, somatically brought back to that that space in their body and I guess in their brain, you're saying the amygdala as well. So then by just talking about it, does that, can that actually make their symptoms worse? If that's the case, is it, if, you know, they start reliving this trauma? Are you talking about um, therapy with or without the MDMA? With, without it. Like if, if someone, I'm trying to like, just kind of look at the comparison of what's going on. So usually, you know, uh, for a lot of people who have 
PTSD, they they go into talk therapy and and they talk about it. But what you're saying is that can activate that traumatic response again. Yeah. And maybe this is where a lot of the work of um, like Peter Levin comes in and and that somatic work, trying to change this somatically from in the body, yeah. trying to change it in the nervous system and not necessarily so much cognitively. Yeah. So. Does it mean that like they could do talk therapy, but they could still get too activated? I guess. I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, for sure. I think Shannon can even address this yeah. more, but definitely, there's that's why you see a high high dropout rate with a lot of PTSD type therapies is because it's so hard for people. They they are constantly being reactivated as they're trying to process the memory. And you're right; it is um, very much like somatically in the body too. So we do a little somatic work with the MDMA helps with the somatic piece of it also. But Shannon, I feel like you probably have a lot of insight to this since you're actually working with people. Yeah. Yeah, Dwayne, I think you you really touch on a good point. And Amy mentioned dropout rates that sometimes it's difficult to tolerate trauma therapy if you're a person go undergoing trauma therapy because it can be so activating. And some people respond well to the current treatments and the the current frontline treatments we call them, or if you went to a typical doctor and was diagnosed with PTSD, you'd likely be prescribed one of four things. If you're talking about pharmaceuticals, it would be Zoloft or Paxil, which are antidepressant SSRIs. And in terms of therapy, the frontline treatments are cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, or prolonged exposure, PE. And a portion of the PTSD population do respond to those treatments, but a large portion do not. Similar to substance use disorder, where there are many different treatment programs, but people aren't necessarily getting cured and, and sustaining their recovery in that way. Okay. So we're finding so far that the MDMA on board really allows people to stick with the therapy process and, and go to that next level with it. Okay, so they can start to kind of talk about the, this. When, when they're on the MDMA, they can start to talk about their trauma but their body is not so activated and it's so intense. So does this allow them to then kind of, you said something earlier about memories and shifting, I guess maybe the emotional response to the memories. Is that what's happening? Yeah, good question. I think in some ways the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD could be described as more intense than other therapies. Okay. We do eight-hour therapy sessions and there are two therapists in the room with each participant at a time. And it can be very expressive and intense at times. And I think the difference is, are we able to go into the intensity while still feeling a sense of safety? And that's a unique property of not only the MDMA molecule working in the brain, but also the setting that we create with having two therapists and a really comfortable, secure room and spending the entire day with somebody. Those are unique, you know, other therapies don't don't have that. Right. And so even in our placebo group, we're seeing that people are having significant effects in their PTSD score, but just because they're having an eight-hour session with two therapists in a really safe setting. But obviously the MDMA you know, really helps with, with taking that further. And maybe we should just say real quick right now, this is only three times that we give the MDMA. So these eight-hour sessions, very different from pharmaceuticals that are prescribed daily to, to uh, just control symptoms. We give the MDMA three times, about one month apart. 
And and I also wanted to say that during the MDMA sessions, some people don't talk very much at all, actually. We really encourage people to go inside and be with the really strong emotions. We don't try to keep people from being really activated. There, that is a difference in some of the somatic work where I know that there's a lot of resourcing that happens and you want to keep people kind of not too activated. But with the MDMA on board, that is the main resource and it allows them to actually really experience their trauma. Some people have some really intense experiences. We hear over and over, why do they call this ecstasy? Like it is difficult work and they are really going inside. There's usually eye, eye shades music. If people are out talking a lot, that's great. We want them to process what they're experiencing. And then at some, at some point, they'll usually be encouraged, go back inside and follow that, follow that. And so there's all types of therapy that might happen during that eight-hour session because you follow the patient's inner process. It's a very inner-directed work instead of directed by the therapist's they need to follow along because we feel like the healing that's going to happen, your body knows what needs to happen to heal that wound. And so there's this inner healing intelligence is something that we call it and that we really want the person to follow that. A lot of the talking happens in the integrative sessions afterwards. So you have an eight-hour session with MDMA. People stay the night really just to start their integrative process to give them a comfortable place to be after such an intense day. And then the next morning, they have an hour and a half of integrative therapy where they can really process with the two therapists what happened that day. And then about a week later, you have another one, a week later, another one, and then you have your next MDMA session. So it's these sets of MDMA, three integrative visits, MDMA, three integrative visits, and then once more, MDMA, three integrative visits. And that's the whole treatment. And it's about 12 to 15 weeks. Wow. Okay. And you said like integrative. What what do you mean by that when they have these three sessions? So let me just make sure I understand. So they have this um, first session that they are going through their trauma. It's eight hours, which makes sense to me because you can't do that in an hour. This is like, it, that makes a lot of sense. So you get to that process. You're in those memories with enough tolerance emotional tolerance to kind of re-experience them differently, I, I guess. And you tell me if I'm off base. And then after that, they they go through these integrative sessions. These, can you tell me a little bit like what that means? Like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and just to name, there's a whole process before they even get to their first MDMA session. Actually, that can be the most tedious. People are meeting the criteria and are healthy and don't have any of the contraindications. So that can be a, a lengthy process. And then we do three preparatory therapy visits before they even come for that first MDMA session. And those preparatory visits are 90-minute therapy visits or more talking than not. And it's really to get to know the participant and their history and their trauma and to build therapeutic rapport with the therapist and also to prepare them for the MDMA session as there's some unfamiliarity for our participants about what that's going to be like. And then the integration after each of the MDMA sessions, sometimes we say most of the work happens in the weeks after an MDMA session. And we really prepare people for that, that they're in a therapy process that lasts several months. And while they're only getting MDMA three times, they're in a full process that keeps unraveling. So sometimes MDMA can make the veil thinner, the veil between what's right underneath the surface. So sometimes somebody who's really suffering, all it really takes is to sit down with them and to ask them honestly, so how are you doing? And they can just settle in and 
suddenly this flood of emotion can come up. And that's kind of one of the ways that I, I see the MDMA working is people are really able to tap into what's right underneath the surface that they're carrying with them all the time. And people with PTSD are carrying their trauma with them all the time. So the MDMA brings those things to the surface and it helps them go back to the trauma in a new way. And it's a lot of information to process. It's it's a lot of intensity. People usually have an altered perspe- perspective, part of the way that makes the thinking more empathetic and somebody can have a, an altered perspective. And it takes those sessions afterwards where we really talk about how does this apply to your life now? Similar to to treating substance use disorder, okay, if you're going to go into recovery and you have this whole lifestyle change and this healing, it's so important to think about how you go back home. What's going to happen back home? How does your entire life support you to be in this healed position? So there's a there's a lot going on. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it sounds like very deep psychotherapy that this process is that's integrated into this whole life picture. It's you don't just do these sessions and then you go home and you're good, but you got to you got to integrate it all into how you're going to live. And now that you're probably I would imagine if you're not having these post traumatic stress responses, that's going to change your whole dynamic of your life and your interaction with other people and your interaction with work and a, and a job and family and yeah that's a huge that's a huge a huge shift and a change so tell me a little bit about like what are the results that you're seeing from this work and what's what's kind of happening now that you're starting to see these these studies come to completion and yeah we've had about 107 people go through the phase 2 studies so if you're familiar at all with FDA you have to go through phase one. This is kind of safety studies. Phase two is where you're starting to show efficacy and safety of, of whatever you're studying. This is the same for any drug that goes through to become um, a prescription. And so in that phase two period, we were working, we worked in multiple phase two studies. And overall, we combined them into 107 participants. And if you look across all of them, the average years that people had had PTSD was 17.8 years. What you would call chronic and treatment resistant, most of the people had tried everything, the list of drugs that they were on, the list of therapies that they had tried. So we're taking the most difficult people. We're not taking people that have just recently had a, a trauma, right? This is this is intense for, for people. They've had their whole life is kind of built around how they've managed these symptoms. And at the end of the 12, like kind of that 12 to 15 week treatment, 56% of them no longer had PTSD. Wow. So that's not even just a, it's an even greater number when you just look at who had a clinically significant drop. But 56%, like if you did the CAPS, which is the gold mm-hmm. standard for how you measure, no longer had it. Now, what's interesting is that we also, so this is two months after their last session also, which is important. It's not like we give you MDMA the next day. How do you feel? It's two months later. So you, they really have a chance to have integrated some of this into their life and to be re-triggered and to try to do some difficult things. So we feel like we're getting a really good picture of what's, that it's a real change. And then interestingly, we looked 12 months later and more people were even better. 68% no longer had PTSD. And, and we attribute this to the fact that people have to figure out how to manage their life. And sometimes they're in some very difficult situations. And so the, the process keeps improving. Now, we don't control what happens during that 12-month follow-up. They can go back to other therapies. 
they can go back on to some medications if they need to. But we we also know that they were doing those same things before and it wasn't working. So something has changed. And some and so people are able to respond to therapy in a new way once they've been able to kind of resolve some of the trauma. It's not like everything's perfect after that, right? People still need some support. But they go on to really change many things about their lives. And they need that time. They need that time from after the treatment is over until the 12-month follow-up. And that's why we think that there's that increase to 68%. And we've done this in one study that was only vets. We did this in studies of people with a PTSD from any cause. We really don't see any difference in the results. It seems to work no matter what the trauma. There's also been recently quite a few people coming in with religious trauma. (laughs) So trauma from being either in cults when they were young or in really um, intense conservative religious communities. So it's really a broad range of uh, reasons that people are coming into our studies. And so it's interesting because a lot of times you might have a therapy, but it works in a narrow population. It works in women, not men. It works in this type of trauma. It works in vets and not others, but that's not the case for this. And we think it's really because it's like a very internal process with really internal healing. And so does that also, we talk about PTSD, we think a lot of like vets in this very um, kind of big trauma. But what about, because what you're saying from people who are coming from different uh, backgrounds, what about developmental trauma or, you know, what we kind of refer to like, yeah, attachment trauma. What about working with, so you're seeing results with that as well. Yes. It's interesting. It has been a hot topic for us lately about attachment disorders and childhood trauma. One of the things that was interesting with the VET study, because the study that we did before, the first study that we did was PTSD from pretty much any cause. And there was a lot of childhood trauma in that population and attachment disorder. And then with the VETs, they had, their primary trauma had to be related to war. We also took some, we took people that had been in the military and had some type of trauma. It didn't have to be exactly combat trauma, but they had to have been in the military and experienced their main triggering trauma. We also had some firefighters and some police officers. We just opened it up to first responders, but it was primarily vets. But what we found is most of those vets also had childhood trauma. And I think that is one of the hallmarks of, of, of kind of a treatment resistant type PTSD is that it's not just one recent trauma. A lot of PTSD does resolve on its own when it's trauma that only happens to you as an adult. Right. So we dove in with these vets and most of them had some type of childhood trauma. And it's, it's very hard to treat these attachment disorders or these developmental traumas. And we are seeing people respond. It's pretty incredible. They're able to go back in. They might've said, my trauma was this thing that happened in Afghanistan. And the first thing that happens when under the MDMA is they go back into their childhood and they start working with the traumas that happened then. Wow. So it's almost like that trauma is on top of this developmental trauma, which is, yeah, I mean, that that's, that is hard to treat. I mean, it seems like with standard talk therapy, that can be a long, a long process of helping people heal that if they can do that. But it sounds like this really opens the window for them to to find a pathway. Yeah, we, we hear, so we do these, we do trainings for our therapists, as you can imagine. It's like we have a whole method and a treatment manual. And one of the things that I hear commonly when I go to uh, be supportive, and I'm, I'm not a therapist and I don't do the training, but I go to support and I give information about the studies that we're doing. And I always hear, wow, what I just saw. So it's a lot of videos. We video every session that happens and then we use those videos for training. And I hear people that are there for the training say, 
I just saw something happen right before my eyes that would have taken five years. Yes. And I saw it happen in a couple of hours. And Shannon, I don't know if you want to chime in because you're, you're actually are treating people and therapists. So you might have some, uh, even more insights to that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting process, even though I've been working with this protocol for several years now, it's still so pleasantly surprising to be in the process. We just I just was treating a participant who is gonna have her two month follow up next week. So she's done all of her MDMA and integration sessions and it was beautiful to obviously it's beautiful to be in the process of doing therapy with somebody and just the depth of this work and partly spending, you know, a full, full day with somebody three times and really being in the midst of it with them for a few months. And to share with her, like she was so surprised. Wow, I I really didn't realize that I could get my life back and that it would happen so quickly. And a lot of people come in with a healthy, healthy amount of skepticism because they've tried many different therapies. They haven't worked. We hear a lot. Well, I never really thought I was going to want to do MDMA in my life, but I'm, I'll try anything at this point. And also kind of sometimes people coming in like, yeah, and I don't know if this will work, but what have I got to lose? And then we get to share in that beautiful surprise of, wow, there's parts of your life that you can just have back. And so sometimes the work is really challenging going really into the trenches of the trauma. And then sometimes it's incredibly celebratory to to come out and to be rewarded with getting functioning back and satisfaction and engagement in life and yeah oh my god i mean that sounds uh, amazing working in this field and seeing the devastation that trauma causes people and to have such a positive effect size is just that's really amazing and really exciting and and uh what what great work i don't know what else to say because it's like that is amazing and how powerful to see that happen. Yeah, and I'll say something else too. Amy mentioned the inner healing intelligence and a lot of treatments, whether it's therapy or pharmaceuticals are about something outside. You take a medication, you go to see a professional therapist and you pay them for their help. And and hopefully that results in, in healing. But a fundamental part of our theoretical approach is this inner healing intelligence, which is to get back to the point where you can heal yourself. And that's a big part of our training with therapists because therapists are often trained to make interventions and to have smart techniques and tricks and questions. And so we actually have to untrain therapists to not be so directive and to not interrupt the process so much and to really allow the participant to come up with their insights. And obviously the therapists are doing a lot in the room, but it's it's so people can be pretty open and receptive in the MDMA experience, especially, and working through their trauma. So being really careful about any agenda or opinion that the therapist might insert there. And the result of it is that the participant really gets to search within for their own resources and realize that they're completely capable people. And they finally have the support of the medicine and the eight-hour session and the two therapists to get in touch with that inner strength that they can heal themselves. And I think that's something that never goes away. Realizing for a participant, I healed myself. It wasn't Shannon, the therapist, or the doctor, or 
not even the MDMA. I mean, people are thankful for that experience, but it's really about getting them back to their own strength. And I imagine with that, that comes uh, resiliency for the for the future because life is hard and it shows up. And if you have that ability and that belief in yourself, I mean, I, I guess that would create resiliency as well. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really awesome. Well, I want to thank you guys for coming on and being part of the Addicted Mind podcast and sharing this important information. It's been it's been fascinating. One more question. What would each of you want to say to somebody out there who's struggling and with PTSD or trauma or anything like that? I would say there's hope. It's challenging to feel hope sometimes in this world and especially with people with PTSD and to realize that we're working on treatments and that you know, whether it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy or another treatment, we're just the psychology field and the medical field is getting better and better. And with this treatment, we're seeing really effective results. And it's challenging sometimes because so far our studies have been small and it's a very long, expensive process to do clinical research. And there's millions of people with post-traumatic stress, 7% of the population in the U.S. Wow. And so it's really challenging to have PTSD at this time. And and we get contacted with people all the time and we have to say, I'm sorry, we don't have a study in Alabama or I'm sorry, we're at maximum capacity for the studies. But the thing that we leave them with is there's hope. These are only steps that are getting us to a point where hopefully this treatment can be approved in the next few years to be a legal prescription treatment. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I would say... I would echo that hope and ask people to, you know, just look, there's a lot of tools that are being developed and a lot of supportive therapies and we've brought up somatic therapies. And it's also a lot of times we're asked, well, what can I do now? That would be like a a drug assisted type of therapy. And there are ketamine therapies that are out there now in clinics. And there are people doing ketamine assisted psychotherapy and not, you know, just ketamine for, and then go home. So there, there are, people that are out there that are really trying to move the move forward, having more tools in our toolbox to help support people. So continue to work with, with uh, find somebody you resonate with and continue to work with them. And there are more tools coming. Oh, thank you so much. If anybody wanted more information about this or how, how could they, they find more information? Yeah. Maps.org. We have a lot of information. Um, one of our uh, one of the missions of MAPS is to also provide education. So we speak a lot. Rick Doblin is the founder of MAPS, and you can find lots of YouTube videos with him talking about this, as well as the rest of our staff. So take a look at our website under the media section and under the research section, and you'll find lots of material. Also, all of this work happens because of donations. We're a nonprofit. And uh, it's all been funded through private donations. We really don't get support from the government or from the VAs or anything like this to do the work that we do. So if you're so moved, it would be um, great to receive more. It's cost millions of dollars to do these studies. Awesome. I will link all that information in the show notes as well so people can get that information about you guys. Once again, thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Amy, for, for coming on to The Addicted Mind. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Duane. It's a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does 
help us a lot. Also, you can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 45. I'll have all that information there for you so you can check that out. And if you have any thoughts about this episode, please leave a comment. I'd love to hear what you guys are thinking about it and any other questions that you guys have. So please do that. And for now, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you next week. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.